Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the second episode of Locked In with me, Kieran Fitzgerald, and today my guest is Clary Sadler, who's an actor, musician, singer, songwriter, playwright, poet, filmmaker, teacher and workshop facilitator, and the artistic director of the Get Enough Productions. How are you, Clary? How's things? I'm good, Kieran. Nice to see you. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. So first, I really want to know, like, how you got started in the arts. Was was the arts and theatre a big part of your childhood growing up? Um, I would say when I was about 11, I discovered it. So secondary school. Um, I was a very shy child, so... I might have been interested in it. I may have looked at other children performing at the Ice Deadwood, but I remember being made to sing, um, you know, the Colours of the Rainbow song, Red and Yellow. Yeah. <laughs> the Ice Deadwood in front of everyone, and just it was one of the most mortifying experiences of my life as a child, and always shying away from it. And then when I went to comprehensive school, I was still quite shy, I didn't have loads of friends, but a visiting company came in called the Unnamed Theatre Company, and they they were doing um, Bugsy Alone with sort of the four schools in the catchment area, um, and the challenge was to well, rehearse it, well, cast it, rehearse it, and do two shows in six days. Um, and I only had a small part of one of the box that got knocked out in the boxing scene but yeah. I loved it and I caught the acting bug then and so that's where that came from and writing wise I always wrote poetry as mm. a child and that continued with my adult life but did the acting come first yeah I would say poetry probably very very basic simple stuff just for fun when I was very young, uh, acting was the first passion. Um, my later teens, I learned to play the guitar, so I used to put a lot of my poems to, so- um, to songs, to music, and then decided that's what I wanted to do when I was about 15, 16. And where did you, where did you train? I trained, well, I did a BTEC in performing arts at Crosskeys College which is now part of the Gwent Tertiary Colleges. And and then from there, I looked around, you know, the, the big drama schools, 
uh, RADA, Welsh College, um, but they were so, uh, as they are now, I mean, they weren't as bad then, but so expensive. And, you know, coming from a working class family, um, my father on disability uh, benefits, the idea of going to a big London drama school um, was quickly uh, squashed, really, the, the hope of that. But I did get into a smaller, unaccredited drama school just outside of London, North Hertfordshire, called Hertfordshire Theatre School, which mm. is no longer there, but um, I think it was it was running from about 1982, and I think it closed its doors in 2010. So it had a, a nice run, and really good training. I don't regret going there at all. Did you feel that you fitted into that world, that the people around you at that point? Were there many people from the same background as you were? Um, I was lucky enough to get a place with a girl I'd done performing arts with in Crossley College, uh, Siobhan. Siobhan Giorgio is her name now, at the time it was Siobhan Carter. Uh, we still work together today. So I sort of had a, a little bit of safety net in that. She was from a similar background, working class family. There were a few, but it was very varied. Right. Um, it did feel like sometimes you were living in, you know, that film Fame, which mm. wasn't really what I was about. I was more, I guess, you know, a little bit niche. I preferred alternative theatre. Um, I'd done an acting and musical theatre course because of the music interest and I quickly realised that musical theatre land wasn't really my cup of tea, although we had a fantastic musical director called Anne-Marie Lewis-Thomas who used to pick really off-the-wall, unusual musicals, things you'd never heard of, so you'd never be doing like um, Les Mis or Grease. You know, never would you be doing that. It would always be something random. In fact, we actually did a couple of songs from a show called Off the Wall, um, <laughs> which was a great show. I'm really interested in musically. We used to do some Stephen Sondheim stuff, mm. which again was interesting as opposed to cheesy, um, you know, Annie and <laughs> that kind of show. I don't. I don't think that stuff is explored enough, you know, in some of these musical theatre degrees. Because musical theatre has this kind of, this image of it being kind of, you know, there being a one-size-fits-all approach to musicals, whereas there's some really interesting pieces that aren't performed much, that aren't, you know, looked at. And I suppose from that, that, um, that, that helped you in terms of your approach to your practice going forward? Yeah, I think, um, definitely needs to be, you know, I'm all about bringing the marginalised groups, marginalised themes, topics that are often unexplored, well, unexplored in the mainstream. Um, I'm passionate about trying to bring that, a light on that, not necessarily make them mainstream because they might potentially lose their appeal and their mm. sort of, um, what makes that sort of a, an interesting area, but I just think, um, 
yeah, definitely to explore and more issue themes mm. as well. Um, you know, a show like Rent, if we think of musical theatre, was great to bring in topics like, you know, HIV and homosexuality into mainstream audiences. Um, but that sort of one show focused on one um, part of history, and I think there's scope, you know, particularly for things like the West End and Broadway, you could be doing more to bring yes. issues to light. I think that you've got a balance of certainly being commercially successful and certainly having to be commercially successful in opposition to wanting to highlight a particular issue. And those two things might not necessarily align. But I think what you're saying is that people have to take more risks with the things that they're producing. And I think, anyway, that audiences will accept more diverse stories, more diverse characters. Um, and it's something that needs looking at. Um, how did Forget Me Not Productions start? Where did that come from? Well, I, as I say, I went to um, a small drama school that really prepared us for the reality of life as an actor, so that you don't come out, graduate, and go straight into the West End, because very few are that fortunate. And it's great for those who do. Um, usually, if you meet the criteria of being a man, um, you you know, your chances go up tenfold because if males are so underrepresented within the arts, or within certainly within theatre, dance and um, musicals. Um, if you live in Wales, being a male and a Welsh speaker, again, that will definitely sort of um, guarantee you work if you want work in Wales. Uh, but otherwise, particularly back then, can be quite tricky and, and the school that I went to, Hampshire Theatre School, taught us how to do things like set up your own business, whether that be theatre and education, so taking projects around schools. Um, another thing that I did a lot of when I first graduated was reminiscence theatre. Um, people might think of that as the kind of people that go in with a guitar and sing, you know, it's a long way to Tipperary mm. to allow people in Nursing, or nursing homes or care homes. What I found my experience as a, as a young graduate actor was it was more about reminiscence therapy techniques. Mm -hmm. So using well-known songs, um, dances that would have been popular at the time, but also using artifacts, using objects, using phrases that they may have used using verbatim um you know text so taking old postcards from people that were actually fighting in soldiers that were fought in world war ii or world war one and creating a piece of drama or theater around that so i got a lot of work in the early days doing reminiscent theater around mm. nursing homes and residential homes and a lot of the companies that send you out to do that charge them astronomical money and then pay these graduate actors, you know, peanuts. So I might be getting a check for, you know, doing one show for £250, mm. and that was back in 2002. But I'd be doing two shows a day, sometimes three. So they might be potentially making £750 a day. 
But I suppose as a graduate actor, you were, to some extent, happy to be getting yes, work in I the industry. Yes, I was happy to be getting work, definitely, and it only got to the point after I'd done it, maybe two years of realising, actually, it's not so much I wasn't grateful for the work, but I got to the point of realising I already had the skills to be able to do that myself. So I set up the company... The name just seemed an obvious choice. Forget Me Not was one of my favourite flowers. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, set up the company Forget Me Not Productions. Mostly um, at the time I was living in Hertfordshire, so it was mostly touring um, Hertfordshire, Bedfordshire, and um, you know that kind of area. And then when I moved back, I I did um, South Wales and sometimes the West of England, mm -hmm. and it just expanded from there really. Mm -hmm. So the, the intention initially, was it for it to be a touring TIE company? I think I had intended to be a TIE actor mm. and then when I got the work mainly in Reminiscence Theatre, I guess I had a pretty good knack at singing um, Viva Lynn songs so I tended to get a lot of work in that area. And, um, yeah, I think it just seemed like an obvious choice then. Although I did um, dabble in some TAE, um, some people I went to drama school with, we set up a company called Building Blocks Theatre Company. We only ended up sort of subsequently doing one tour, um, basically because we all lived, you know, we had one living up in St. Albans, one living in Hitchin in Hertfordshire, and I lived in South Wales. It just wasn't uh, feasible. But we did do one tour, and, and that was quite successful. And I've done um, Peter Pan and uh, a few other sort of TIE things since then. Mm. Do you think, um, I think TIE has suffered especially in recent years due to the lack of funding? Because we used to have quite a big... TIE culture in Wales, didn't we? But now I yeah. suppose funding has dried up, so there isn't isn't the ability to produce the amount of work that was going on, say, 10, 15 years ago in Wales. Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, certainly funding is, a, is an issue I mean, I don't know if TIE companies have, have been hit more than others. I know certainly things like the youth services have suffered, um, whether you class that, you know, as coming under the same umbrella. As someone that applies for a lot of Arts Council of Wales grants, or I certainly have done in the past, whereas I could have easily got a project Funded, and I have had um, youth projects funded. One of them was a songwriting project back in 2014, uh, 2013, sorry, and one was a uh, racism, anti racism and bullying mm -hmm. project from 2014. I don't think I would get those projects funded today in this current climate. Um, they still seem to be liking <laughs> funding um, things that are maybe themed about disability mm. or sexuality, sexual orientation, transgender issues. Um, it's almost as if there's a new buzzword or buzz topic, you know, every couple of years. And 
the TIE stuff is sort of run its course now. Although in saying that, I did do a project, um, this was Heritage Lottery funded last year, which was looking at circus traditions in Wales, and I did that at a school in Abercrombie. Okay. In London and and but that was a heritage lottery project, so there was a balance of arts activities and heritage activities. Um, I don't think the Arts Council would have funded something like that. Obviously, Heritage Lottery Wales are interested in anything, you know, linked with Welsh heritage, and, and there was a lot of that within mm. the project. But it's good to know that those projects are still happening and that it hasn't dried up. It just might be that the funding source has changed. Um, you trained as a teacher, didn't you? So, but you went, did you go back into education to train as a teacher? I, I think when I was, trying to think now, it was a while ago, 2007, I found that um, most of my work, because I didn't necessarily want to tour the country, my brother had just had um, a baby boy who is now 14, he'd be 15 in August, so was that 2007? I'm trying to, I'm trying to add up, yeah, yeah something like yeah. that. Um, I think 
being sort of defined by whatever topics in the curriculum that you had to cover um, didn't make it difficult because you did have some freedom, particularly with like key stage three. I suppose you could choose to an extent topics you covered. The difficulty, um, my first job was a maternity cover at Lanishan High School and I was there almost for a full year. And I did set up a few schemes of work. I did a topic on gangs, which I believe they carried on using for many years. I did a storytelling one based on Welsh stories um, called Palietin, which again, I think they did for a few years. But the problem with that is you only saw these sort of your seven, your eight, your nine kids once a fortnight. Mm. And I had, I think, seven year seven classes, eight your eight classes and about five or six year nine classes which you'd be seeing throughout the fortnight but they weren't particularly engaged because they couldn't remember what happened two weeks ago you no. couldn't really remember which child was which as much as you might try to write you know accurate notes and things for assessment purposes it just didn't have the same i mean when i worked with gcses and the A-level groups. I did like that, even though there was a curriculum to follow, um, you kind of could be more hands-on with them because you knew them better. Um, so that was my main not complaint. I understood why they did it, I suppose. And also I used to find that um, pupils with additional learning needs or disabilities, um, so there was a hearing impaired unit at Lanishan High School, and for whatever reason, they would pull them out for extra help in reading and writing during drama. So for the whole time I saw them in that year, I had two um, year eight pupils mm -hmm. that were hearing impaired. They would only ever come in for the last 20 minutes of the drama class. So it was, was so difficult to, you know, work around that, really. So it was as if that the school had this but drama wasn't as important so that they could justify taking these kids out of your lesson because it was drama. Do you think that was the case? That was most definitely the case and um, you know another issue was I didn't have a classroom I taught in the hall um, which was just a nightmare come exam season because they put the tables in and you yeah. were just getting around in any old classroom. You're trying to do a drama lesson where you, you know the, the pupils are used to be sat, used to being sat in a circle in an empty sort of mm. black box space ready to work, and then having to spend the first ten minutes putting the, the desks you know stacked against the wall so they had some room in the class. You know it used to be kind of difficult, also shows what the sort of senior management really yeah. thought of a subject like drama, you know, mm. that it could get cancelled, you know, they could just do desk-based activity. Yeah. You know. Were you still doing work with uh, Forget-Me-Not, as Forget-Me-Not, while you were teaching? I was doing very occasional work in the sort of school holidays, so I might have an Easter project that would only involve me touring maybe five or six nursing homes, maybe more in the summer. Um, 
but that would usually dwindle off because you know the workload as a teacher was quite extensive mm. so you would find you needed that time in the holidays to mark and to plan and to you know get the coursework in and things like that I suppose then it's a case of picking things and was there, was there a moment when you realised that you wanted to be doing the work with Forget-Me-Not? Kind of? Yeah, I think, yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I think um, one of the issues as well, I didn't want to move out of Wales. As I said, you know, I, uh, my brother had had children when by the time I graduated. He had a, a daughter as well, it was one. And my dad had been diagnosed with prostate cancer. My mum was just getting over breast cancer. It was important for me to stay mm. in Wales, to stay nearby. And a lot of the people I went to uni with, they were happy to just take any job. So you'd have some people, you know, getting a job randomly in Oxford. Now, I would never apply for a job, a job in Oxford. I knew no one in Oxford, and I had no interest of moving there. You know, I was 31 when I graduated. So I could understand them, you know, age 23, thinking, yeah, I'll start my life there. But I already felt I had a life established. Mm. And I couldn't get a permanent job in Wales. I had a maternity cover as my first job. Then I had an acting head of department as my second job, but that was just for term. Then I had acting head of department, but covering someone's um, sick long-term sick leave so that was about a year but that was paid on a supply teacher rate so I was doing the, the role of a head of department but being paid £80 a day not getting mm. any overtime even though sometimes I would be leaving there at half past seven at night and then my last job that I got was also a maternity cover which was um, in Tembe and I lived in Panath at the time Oh, so I used to sort of travel for two and a half hours to Tembe. I'd have people say, well, why don't you stay? I've got a, I've got a cottage, a holiday cottage you can sort of rent off me. This was in the middle of winter as well. You know, I, <laughs> I thought, well, that defeats the purpose of me, you know, keeping a job in Wales if I'm just going to live in Tembe. Yeah. So I did, I, I think I managed to, to make that job last just over a term. And also, you know, they told me I was doing a drama cover job, and it ended up being a small percentage of it was drama. I was also covering travel and tourism, health and social care, and child development. Right. None of which I knew anything about. So it was just a bit of a joke by the end of mm. it. And I remember one of my last drama classes was with a year nine group, and they just brought brought in that they were trying to change and reform the curriculum so they were trying to get math skills into into drama which is great and there's loads of ways you can do it but I think we spent weeks you know drawing like the audience matrix and these kids would be like when are we going to do drama when are we actually going to get up and do it and yeah. it just felt like forever because there's loads of this kind of paperwork we have to do now you know getting them to use a ruler and a protractor properly you know and and I just kind of thought I don't love this enough to keep doing this to myself <laughs> you know driving two and a half hours it'd take me three hours to get home and actually not teaching drama which is the yeah. subject that. and I got offered a job with 
um, the big learning company based in Cardiff, going into a special school in Rondekan and Taff called Ascol Henvelin. I'm directing or helping one of the teachers there direct um, Beauty and the Beast. So doing a, a key stage three, key stage four, and uh, Beavers. We're doing you know a, a whole after school um, concert. So I did that and I left. I left the teaching job and I decided when I got back into that sort of line of work that I was gonna, I was gonna, you know, start again with Forget Me Not, incorporate, mm. become a limited company, and that's what I did in March 2013. I've been doing it since. <laughs> And, and when you went into the special school, was that where the interest in um, working with uh, people with PMLD came from? Or did you have that interest beforehand? I, I always found it fascinating um, while we were training um, to be teachers, you know, the form the planning form had to be so detailed with your learning outcomes and, you know, I think at the time it was common skills and key skills you had to put in and how you were going to differentiate. And I always found it fascinating that, you know, in theory, it was something you wrote down as a tick box exercise. I never saw a lot of differentiation happening with other teachers, particularly when I went in as a trainee teacher and would have, you know, the mentor, you know, you'd observe some of the classes. And, yeah, there wouldn't be a great deal of that happening. I always try to differentiate, you know, in a genuine way, not just saying, you know, if someone's got a hearing impairment, I will sit them near the front and I will speak, you know, it's kind yeah. of like, what will you actually do and how will you actually, you know, make... Um, changes and interventions and allowances for them to take part equally. Um, and then going into a school in Berlin, you would think a special school is already doing the best at that sort of thing. Of course, you've got a range yeah. of um, abilities and a range of disabilities there. And I was shocked to see that within a special school, setting there was still and it's not just that school I think it's true across the board um, you know that there are still groups of young people being marginalized that are not mm. given the same opportunities particularly in areas for instance like drama music um, art you know you know I think when we were doing the concert someone had suggested we could just wheel them on we were doing Beauty and the Beast, put them in the back row, make a giant like cardboard knife and fork and stick it on their wheelchair and just wheel them around during the song Be Our Guest. And I thought, well, yeah, that's one way of including them. But, you know, what, other, what else have you got in the school? And I, I met my, my wife, Mel, who's an assistive technology specialist at that school. She worked there at the time as the technology specialist in the department and so we had a big chat about what they could do and how they could take part and using sort of assistive technology and things like green screen filming we we actually included them as the narrators so they went from being just kind of pushed at the back 
really not doing anything. Mm. Having, you know, the lead roles, you had three young people um, using eye gaze technology to tell the narration, to tell the story, to keep the story moving along, which was projected um, on the back wall. Uh, on you know over green screen films, so it was made to look mm. like the Beast's Castle. Um, they could have potentially done that live. It would have added a lot of pressure, considering they'd never done anything like that before in school yeah. before. So we, I mean, I did. I've ended up doing the three or four projects, similar projects at that school, and as it's developed and made more experience in it, I think the last one we did was a, a adaptation of The Sound of Music. And they did, we had some, some of the young people using eye gaze and using switches to speak their lines via their communication aids, speak them live, which is really exciting because that hadn't happened before. And it gives those children a sense of being a part of something, being included, that they wouldn't have had before, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Definitely, and I think be able to achieve something like that independently when all they've done before maybe is just got wheeled on by a member of staff mm. I mean okay they would have been included in a dance or a song while doing that they would have been dressed up you know but I think for them I don't think many parents used to come and watch that sort of thing I certainly know that when some of these young people in later years had the lead role or a speaking part, and they performed live. You had their parents come in for the first time, actually see them doing something in the show, and being so filled with pride afterwards because you know they can do it, mm. they are able to do it, and they are able to achieve independently if they're given the right tools. Absolutely, that's something that I firmly believe in as well. But you have to. As you said, give them the tools with which to do it and believe in them. I've, I've generally have the belief that people can achieve a lot more than we think they can. Yes, definitely. And you also run um, music workshops using, right, yeah. using assistive technology. Um, can you explain how that works for people who don't really, maybe aren't familiar with some of this technology? Yeah, sure. So um, we've developed, um, so myself and Mel, Mel's now part of the company. Um, she's the co-director of Forget Me Not. And we now more specialise, I still do the reminiscence work and still do some of the work with um, you know young people, but we mainly specialise in working with family, disabled, um, young people and adults. And we use assistive technology, so things like eye gaze, which essentially is a planted tablet, so a sort of, a, usually a large screen tablet mounted on a stand or on someone's wheelchair. And then on the bottom of the device, there is a long camera sort of stretches across the bottom of the screen and camera tracks the person's eye movements so their eyes can essentially act as a mouse so it can access the screen um, someone you know that maybe is um, quite skilled in using eye gaze would be able to use the computer controls so there would be you know 
buttons down the side, you know, cells that they could access that would say things like left click, right click, double click, um, space bar, that sort of thing, scroll up, scroll down. And with that kind of access, they can use the entire computer or laptop, um, and the, the entire device, sorry, as a computer or laptop, so just by using their eye movements. Um, at a lower level, you might be doing a cause and effect activity, so there may be something like a guitar on the screen, mm -hmm. and when the person looks at the strings, they hear a sound, or there might be a drum, and when they look at the correct icon, they might make a drum roll. So we've created um, a framework called Music Can, which, you know, I'm sure as many people would agree, music is a fantastic motivator. And, you know, some, some of these people may have had lots of assistive technology sessions, some may have had very minimal or none. So we will use music to motivate them to engage with mm. technology. Um, so I might go in as a live musician, do a warm-up activity in which they are playing along with me, or we might do a turn-taking activity. So I play a bit on my keyboard, and then they play a little bit on their on-screen piano. Um, I play a little bit on my guitar, they play a little bit on their guitar, um, and then there'll be opportunities for us to jam along together. Um, doing songs that might motivate them or might, you know, get a lot of smiles. Um, when we develop that further, we might do, might introduce choice making. Mm. So they can sort of boss me around by picking the instrument that I play. So I take, you know, an array of instruments like a drum, harmonica, guitar, banjo, that sort of thing. And they will then choose the instrument and I will play a bit of it. And then as that develops further, they may then um, choose the song. So we could do an activity where they I start a bit of a song and they tell me if they want more of that song yeah. or something okay. different. Yeah. Um, that's um, in a nutshell. So, so can you repeat that? I said that's, that, that is in a nutshell, really. And I suppose different people you work with will have different levels of ability, but I suppose you see their competence for using this technology come on and develop through the workshops that you do. And I, I don't think you'll mind us mentioning them, but you work with a young man who's called Jack, who now composes his own songs with through your workshops is that right yeah that's correct so we've been working with him for i think about three and a half years now it should be four years this summer and when we first started it would be more of those um you know like turn taking activities where i would play a bit on my instrument live and he would play a bit using much more complicated virtual technology but he would use technology to play something and then we might play something together. As that developed, we um, started working on literacy and um, communication through eye gaze. And I think as a motivator, um, Jack's very, very interested in music and theatre and live shows. So 
it wasn't always motivated to use the, the technology, to use the eye gaze, but introducing that music aspect really opened up, you know, a whole new world for him. So we were doing things like exploring connected language and writing songs. It might be writing a song, you know, in a letter writing format. That was his first song. Um, a song called Only Love. Right. which was featured on a, on a BBC Wales, um, um, I think it was, was the summer before, oh, it was April actually, last April, uh, they did a feature on in BBC Wales, uh, and it was featured in the Raw Fest Youth Festival in Cardiff. Oh, wow. So, that was, that was great, and Jack also um, planned the storyboard for a music video using PowerPoint completely independently and then actually filmed the music video um, using his device, using the camera built into his device and starred in it as well. He was in a few scenes, um, used his uh, carers and support team um, to be the characters within, within the uh, music video. And then edited it using a piece of software called Wondershare Filmora, which is a mainstream piece of software which we were able to create um, a grid for, so a sort of a specialist piece of software that sits over the top of mainstream apps and allows you to use them. Um, so there's, yeah, loads that mm. potentially, you know, for any ability, uh, our music can framework. Um, you know, opens um, up avenues. And that's a piece of technology that you've developed. Uh, the framework is music cat, so that's sort of, uh, you know, like a, a scheme of work, if you like. And the technology and the software that we tend to use a lot within that is something called the Grid 3, mm. which a company called Smartbox has developed. So it's just a matter of us um, working with individuals or schools because a lot of them don't have or don't know about this technology or if they have it they don't have the specialist knowledge to know how to apply it to something like music and the arts so it's about giving you know experiences for example jack did a music theory unit and got a level one in music theory which is sort of on a par with you know thinking like year nine year okay. nine music now, for someone that cannot click or clap his hands, he has no use, you know, well, not able to, to do that, um, you know, um, you know, he, he may be able to do it involuntary, but not to do it on time if we're doing something like tempo and rhythm. Yeah. Um, to teach concepts of tempo and rhythm to an eye gaze user. Uh, it's quite difficult, but he managed it and managed to get um, qualification in music theory, um, which just shows the extent to which music can act as a um, motivator. Definitely. I completely agree. And um, I suppose people will from that piece that Jack did for, um, for BBC, people will look at that and you know this could be more widespread you know they could they, they could be a logic and a universality to this technology and I think what's 
brilliant about it is that it allows people to demonstrate their potential where otherwise they wouldn't have been able to. Um, yeah. Um, thank you very much for that, Clara. It's been great talking to you. you. Um, so this is the end of episode two. Uh, I'll be back in the next few days with another episode. Not sure who the guest is going to be yet, but thank Clay for being involved as you soon. Bye. Yes, cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.